Good morning again. If you're visiting, my name is Peter, and again, I serve on the team of elders that leads the church. And today we get to kick off a brand spanking new preaching series called Freedom in Tension. As we focus on Romans 14 and 15 the next several weeks, we're going to see that we cannot be intentional about our faith without living in tension. Unless we embrace the tension between liberated freedoms that we enjoy versus restrictive convictions that we employ, we won't be walking in the faith appropriately. There's lots of tensions that are brought up in the Bible, but specifically this convictions and freedoms tension goes deep in Romans 14 and 15. I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet to honor God's word. We're going to read Romans 14, verses 1 through 12. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld. For the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Verse 6 The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord, and the one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives, none of us Christians lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or we die, we are the Lord's. Verse 9. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, rose again, that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For as it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow to me and every tongue will confess to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. The word of the Lord. Y'all can be seated as we pray. Jesus, please add a blessing to the reading of your word. Thank you. Thank you for your word. Lord, we are yours. There's no greater identity that we could tap into. We're yours. Holy Spirit, show us what that means for how we live. Amen. Amen. If you're taking notes, I have one idea, one rather cautionary idea that's going to guide our time. The big idea is this. Don't let your convictions threaten the freedoms of another. And don't let your freedoms threaten the convictions of another. See, on one hand, Christianity requires some 
objective convictions. These are deep beliefs about Jesus and about life that Paul says in verse 5, we all must be fully convinced of, right? Like the, the King James, we need to be fully persuaded about in our own minds. And, and the central and indeed, indeed the highest convictions would be like these, that Jesus lived a perfect life here on earth, a sinless life, but then he chose to die a death that we deserved for our sin on a certain Friday afternoon in history. And that same Sunday morning, that same weekend, he got up out of the grave and left a tomb verifiably empty and over the next 40 days began appearing to over 500 eyewitnesses that saw the once dead man, now very much verifiably not dead. And he ascended into heaven and these 500 eyewitnesses were willing to testify to the detriment of societal stability that they saw King Jesus alive. In the face of torture and death, they didn't change their story. See, these are objective convictions. This is non-negotiable objective doctrine and truth for the Christian. We, we don't argue about it. We preach it. We live from it, and we die for it. See what I mean by objective convictions? And nevertheless, on the other hand, some convictions about how we allow our beliefs to play out in life are admittedly subjective. They have to do with personal obedience to the Holy Spirit, subject to how you obey the voice of God. For instance, how we eat and drink and keep the Sabbath, or if Jewish Christians are really allowed to eat chicharrones con chile. It could be, and maybe not. It depends on how you hear the Lord. So you'll find that it's, in one sense, we can joke, we're going to be able to joke about some things today and laugh at ourselves a little bit. But that's because these things actually are important questions and they matter. And there's a tension here between freedoms and convictions that it would be wise to not try to take away. These tensions cannot be resolved or we will devolve into either a, a, a really strong spiritual freedoms without any conviction or really zealous convictions without any real freedom. And neither of those are good. They're both dangerous and unfortunately they're both very common in our liberal, conservative, polarized generation. And I would say the reason that they're a problem is because they are alternatives to the one true gospel, which brings Holy Spirit conviction and Holy Spirit freedom at the same time. So, I have two main points as I teach through our passage today. When I tell you the first one, I'm thinking you'll be able to guess the second one. The first one is this. Don't let your convictions threaten the freedoms of another. Now, our passage starts by sort of picking on those of us that uh, have some more conservative convictions, I could say. And immediately we're labeled in a really humbling way, verse 1, As for the one who is weak in the faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. See, evidently, conservative people even quarreled about silly opinions back then, like I tend to do sometimes. A little context here that's really important to understand about the people that Paul was writing to in Rome. 
Five years before this letter was written, the emperor Claudius, Roman emperor, kicked all of the Jews out of the city of Rome. And so for several years, the church in Rome was largely Gentiles only. And then a few years later, Emperor Nero comes to the throne by killing his stepdad, Claudius. And in the violence of, of that, the wake of that, uh, they, they kind of forgot to, for a little while to pick on the Jews. And some of the Jewish Christians and other Jews started to move back into the city of Rome. Now, when they came back into the church, how many of y'all can imagine uh, this one cultural group of people gone from the church for a while, all of a sudden they come back and it feels really different. Have you ever been to church and it just feels, man, I'm not used to this. Uh, I think for, for one, in one sense, every person that comes to our church, I, I hope experiences that to agree, to, to a degree. And they came back and this was like, man, this is not right. This church, it's, it's weird. It's, it's really loud music. Dudes up front in skinny jeans singing. I don't know what to do with that. Another dude's not even wearing shoes. What is going on? This felt like blasphemous chaos to the Jewish conservatives with their sensibilities, right? Okay, so it wasn't really that. But for them, it was tensions in their culture that was more specifically whether or not they were allowing in their church potlucks non-kosher meats that the pagans ate. Can we eat this in our church potlucks? That was big for them. Or, or do we worship on Saturdays and gather on Saturdays like Jews had been accustomed to for millennia? Or do we start worshiping and gathering on Sundays? Like we actually have evidence that as, as early as the first century, Christians were starting to gather on Sundays in commemoration of the Lord's Day or Resurrection Sunday. And they were left thinking, well, what do we do about these things? Now, these were even in the day relatively small issues. And even think about the context of the book that we've been preaching through, the book of Romans, for the last almost year. The re- relatively small issues compared to the depth that Paul's already managed here. But the way that Paul addresses these issues, church, can have a really big impact on what you believe about God and how we live life. We're talking largely about cultural tensions surrounding non-central issues of the Christian faith. Now, I didn't say non-important. I said non-central. We're not talking about central issues. Like the affirmation of the creeds, Jesus' death, burial, resurrection. We're not talking about murder or sexual immorality or anything to do with any of the Ten Commandments. We're talking about basic questions of, for instance, how can Christians who have, by faith, died to their past and to their sin, and by faith in the power of God, been raised to new life, and thus enabled to live obediently in the Spirit of God, how can we play out this obedience with the necessary power and freedom and wise biblical conviction in the sinful world that we live in? that is ripe with all the inherent complications. Is this a relevant question to us today? This is an important way to understand. And what was important is Paul was saying these are important because they'll tell you how you hinge off of your faith, but they're not central. Now, to illustrate the central versus non-central in another way, 
Think of these questions, these tensions that are arising culturally. Think of them like house rules. Okay, in certain, in certain rooms of the house, there's certain rules. In other rooms, there's things that are not okay. It's, it's God's house. They're house rules. But the central convictions that are most important of the gospel is the keys by which we get into the house. And so we can't confuse the keys to get into the house with the way that we live and obey the master of the house once we're granted entrance. And confusing these two is very problematic to our whole faith and what Jesus died for. Now, the Jew and Gentile cultural tension of the first century Rome, I would say, is not that different than today's tension between liberal and conservative Christians. Now, notice I said liberal and conservative Christians, because we are, are dealing with Christians here. The, Paul will address people that are on both extremes that he would argue are not Christians. But here, look at verses 6 through 8. It says, well, this person that, that, that either abstains or eats, it's in God's honor. So, so we're dealing with Christians that live and think differently. Is that relevant? None of the conservative Jews on one extreme were religious frauds. They weren't using their man-centered convictions as masks for cross-minimizing legalism, much like the church in Galatia that Paul condemned in the book of Galatians, or much like the people that we've all known that are self-righteous, but not, you know, like, for reals righteous, holy in faith by Jesus. And on the other end, the liberals or the Gentiles that Paul's addressing here are not faithless frauds whose so-called freedoms were masks for sensuality and lawlessness, like several of the churches that John condemns in Revelation 2 and 3. See, and we're all aware of the counterfeit churches in our day that are both hyper-liberal or hyper-conservative extremes, so-called Christians who've forgotten about grace and truth and, you know, Jesus. What I'm saying is that the believers that Paul's addressing here in Rome were of neither extreme. They were Jews and Gentiles. We could say conservatives and liberals that were living to honor God, who were unified by a common faith in our God and Savior, Jesus, but who nonetheless didn't agree about everything and how to culturally live out their faith and answer all of the non-central questions associated. Important questions associated. Now, does this tension sound familiar at all? If you've been in church for more than a day, Lord, help us. This is going to be helpful for us to go through this these next several weeks. Now, personally, if I've ever been accused of one of these two extremes, you know, kind of sifting into my faith and confusing my faith, uh, it would be the conservative extreme. And Paul calls me weak here, which sort of hurts my feelings. And the more I've studied this and seen commentaries and and preachers deal with this passage, you know, why are they called weak, the conservative folks here called weak, even though it's faith. They honor God with their weakness. 
and here's how I understand it. My thought is that most of the conservative convictions that I have in their proper place, most, are at best a faith-filled acknowledgement of my weakness rather than universal rules for everyone else to follow. That's why Paul calls the more conservative, more restrictive Christian weak, though he's honoring God. I'll give you an example. Years ago, we held uh, the first several months of our elder team, we held our elders meeting in Dunkin' Donuts. Um, It was kind of, you know, proximity to one of our places of work, and it just kind of worked for us until it stopped working for us. And quite frankly, there might have been a lot of reasons for that, but one of them was my weakness. Now, I've never preached an anti-donut sermon from this pulpit, but my weakness and thus my convictions were operative in how I was managing life from that point forward and really how we conducted our elders' meetings. See, it was my weakness. It's my weakness primarily often that drives these additional restrictions and convictions. And I'm not adding to the Bible so long as I acknowledge that personal subjectivity. In fact, I I am obeying the Holy Spirit with the boundaries he gives me because he loves me. And if I acknowledge that, it's not a problem. That's why he says, do not pass judgment on others who don't have to hold to the same convictions. Verse 3, let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. Now this word uh, that we translate into English, pass judgment, is really just one Greek word that literally means to separate. To separate. Let me be clear, church. There are good times to judge and to separate. There are good times. To separate or to judge against people who claim the name of Jesus, but reject, like we've said, the orthodox view of our faith or the basic moral teaching in the Ten Commandments. Paul even says elsewhere, do not sit and eat a meal with someone who makes this claim. There's a danger associated. There's a good time to judge and separate, to make distinctions between a brother and that which is not a brother. However, non-central questions of food and drink and propriety should not invoke this separation. So non-central questions are important questions, remember? They're important, just not central. And let's ruffle all the feathers we can possibly ruffle to examine some of the big questions and non-central questions of our day. Should Christians drink alcohol? This has been, churches have kind of like really put all their chips on this one in the past, right? Should Christians drink alcohol? The crazy thing is, is some of, some, of, some of you should never drink alcohol. But it's not in the Bible, just like I said it. Uh, some of you, it's okay. But how many of y'all would agree? This is an important question that I think some of us haven't put enough thought and prayer into. So, so do that. Uh, how about, how much TV watching is too much? Or screen time with your kids? How many of y'all know that that's kind of like a neurological issue of our day? Like, we need to think about this. Uh, What about R-rated movies? Should Christians 
watched Game of Thrones, Lord of Thrones. I think I said the threat the first time. Important question. Celebrating Christmas. Celebrating Christmas with a Christmas tree. Isn't the Christmas tree a pagan symbol? Well, Paul would argue, like, if you have a problem with it, then maybe you shouldn't. But don't go posting about how all Christians need to agree with you. Uh, Can we celebrate Halloween or go to Halloween parties? And there's been multiple years leading this church that I've just wanted to go ahead and make rules about that one. But I would be disobeying scripture if I did that. It's important, though. It's an important question. What about reading Harry Potter? Isn't that about witchcraft? What about going to yoga classes? Is anyone not uncomfortable yet? I'll keep going. What about going to yoga classes? The Bible forbids emptying our minds. So what are we supposed to do with that? Or it's 2020. What about involvement in political parties? Jeez. Now I've opened some cans. So let's open some more. What about the ways that Christians dress? I mean, can't we forbid the bodybuilding dude on the worship team from wearing his muscle shirt every week? <laughs> Everyone's looking around like, is that anyone? Okay, no, no. What about, <laughs> what about the girl in the parking lot ministry who just loves her super low-cut blouses? It's less awkward when you don't have a parking team, so you know I'm being hypothetical. <laughs> what about clubbing, partying? Dancing. Remember Footloose? Some of y'all do if you're as old as me. The whole movie was about a church who made their stand against that. And therefore, like, the the gospel redemption piece in the movie was, like, liberating yourself from that. But how many of y'all know that's not what the church is primarily for, to forbid dancing? But it's an important question. Because if you just have no thought about whether you should go clubbing or not, that's foolishness. Uh, Should Christians participate in dating, online dating, Tinder, match, all these things? Or is there something else for Christians? That's an important question. How many of y'all believe? I'm going to help my daughters to manage this question. Parenting styles, to spank or not to spank? That is the question. Or public school versus homeschool or private school. Again, really important question for you to consider in regards to your kids and not someone else's. What about environmental matters? Can you call yourself a Christian if you don't recycle? Uh, You might laugh about this, but I I grew up in Oregon, so that hurts my feelings that y'all are laughing. Can Christians take 30-minute showers or for the sake of the environment, skip showers altogether? I want to forbid both of those, but I won't. Psychotherapy. Should Christians be allowed to go see counselors? Well, I think so, but I'm not going to fight you over it. Medications. How much drug is too much drug? Well, I think there's a line there, but it's not explicitly stated in the Bible. Or finally, healthy living and diets. Should we eat right? What does that even mean? And can't I give God thanks at P. Terry's Burgers, even with the milkshake? I think so. See, I've been to churches, though, that talk more about health and wellness than they do about Jesus. And I would say that's a problem. See, these are important questions to wrestle wrestle with, but are they essential? 
As verse 1 says, we cannot allow them to determine whether or not we welcome brothers into fellowship over these questions. Whereas verse 4 says, we cannot separate over these questions. Frankly, we have to repent if we have done that. That we have done that. See, the most problematic thing is when we move things that are not central to the center, what things that ought to be in the center are we displacing? And how does it dampen our worship and our experience and our devotion of Jesus Christ? How does it affect our witness to others who are not yet in the faith when we use all of our boldness and our passion to preach lesser gospels of anti-something? And crazy enough, when you exalt these important, while not central questions to a place of primacy in your life or in your faith, you ironically cut off your capacity to answer these very questions because you forfeited your only right grid in answering them, the gospel of grace and truth. See, are these topics difficult to avoid, though, as verse 1 warns? Of course they're difficult to avoid. We need God's help for them to be in the right place. And that is because, again, as much as I joke about this, I think each and every one of these questions is really important. I really do believe it. In fact, if you don't apply the right tension of conviction and freedom to these questions in your life as you follow the Lord and obey the Spirit, you do run the risk of quickly shipwrecking your faith and worshiping idols. See, I always, I always want to be careful to not, not understate things. I really do believe these are important, but they're not essential. What's essential is what Jesus has done for us to set us free so that we, we can be on a perch to even see these things rightly and wrestle with them and listen to the Holy Spirit and obey his voice to his honor. That's what's important. That's why verse 6 is so important. The one who observes the day observes it in honor to the Lord. And the one who eats, eats in honor to the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. The one who abstains to God. See, I understand that there are people who can uh, abstain in honor of themselves. And there are those who, who eat to indulge themselves. But Paul's saying here that both can be done for the right motive. So, We need to dignify and respect people who are different than us in the faith, in the church. We can't ignore these questions. That would be foolish. We can't ignore them, but we can't make small things big. And sadly, the church has done that. And it's like we we become known as the anti-whatever church. And instead of being known by the God that we serve, and that's what it's all about. Christian living is all about God and what he does in us. The fact that we're hearing him and compelling others to, to listen to his voice. Verse 3, let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. See, the way you handle these lesser questions says a lot about God, and that's the more important thing. Verse 4, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. He will be upheld. Because the Lord is able to make him stand. See, I love how how Paul uses small matters 
to tap into some enormous truths about God. See, it doesn't matter as much if we agree on all these issues. What matters is the greatness of God that sustains all of us amidst our disagreement. So number one, do not let your convictions threaten the freedoms of another. And number two, do not let your freedoms threaten the convictions of another. Let's go back to the first part of verse three. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. So Paul moves here from addressing the weak brother to addressing the more free brother. See, God's desire is that we grow in sanctification so that we can be more free the more we walk with Jesus. More like he designed us to be in the garden and more like he will perfect us to be in heaven. But let me be clear. None of us is going to be fully free like that while we're here on earth. Think of it this way. Adam and Eve, before they sinned, you could say that they were free, right? They didn't need, they had one rule. And for like a minute, they obeyed it, I guess. I don't know how long. They had one rule, but they were free. You're free to eat of any tree in the garden. And there was a prohibition, right? The prohibition was to confirm the, the contrary nature of their freedom. They were free. They were naked. Why? They, they didn't have any shame. There was no sin. There was no need for clothing. There was nothing to cover up. But listen, no matter how free you as a Christian get in this life before being glorified with him, you can't go around naked. We're not that free. So in the spectrum of freedom and conviction, don't despise your brother who needs a little bit more freedom. Or you could say it this way, who needs a little bit more faith-filled restrictions on certain questions in their life whether it's food or drink or clubbing or dating, don't despise that brother who needs that figurative clothing before heaven's glory. Don't despise. And this word despise is really important. It's actually this admonition against the liberal brother to not despise the the, the weaker brother is not that different than the, the word judge or separate that the admonition to the weak conservative guy that we were given. This word despise, the original word that Paul uses, to make no account or to think little of. And I, I've researched a lot of translations, and I, f- I think the best translation of this word that we translate despise is actually in the older Spanish versions. No menosprecies a tu hermano. And, and most of us understand that menospreciar. Menos, like less, right? Preciar, like price or value. Don't Think less in value of your brothers who hold different convictions than you do. I'll give you an example of this. In my extended family years ago, there was one of my family members who was an alcoholic that had a terrible fall. And right after his uh, rehab, the first family gathering he came to with all of us, I asked my whole family, can we forego alcohol at this gathering? Can we just get rid of it? And uh, sadly, I was met with a lot, of, uh, a lot of angry reluctance from several family members. And one of the things that one of my family members said that really kind of made me sad and disturbed me was, this person said, his drinking problems are not my fault. 
and I said, yeah, yeah, his drinking problems are not my fault either. But the question is, is his worth more important than my freedom? How often do others sacrifice their freedoms for you because you're worth it to them? I mean, your parents changed your diaper a lot growing up because you're worth it, but it wasn't their poop. And how often in my own life has, has some other Christian dealt with my figurative poop and traded what they had rights to claim to in order to love me? Do not despise or think little of your weaker brother. Growing up, I, uh, I was a religious person, but I was not a Christian. I did not live to honor God like the people in Romans 14 that Paul mentions here. Uh, on one hand, I, I didn't have any real convictions, but I also didn't have any freedoms either. I was a slave to pride, to insecurity, and especially to lust. I would say I was normal. The way that I saw young women is that I saw bodies with souls to manipulate rather than seeing souls with bodies to respect. I was normal. I didn't yet have Jesus' eyes to see his creation. That's how I saw life. And then some students in a campus ministry opened the Bible to me. And I saw myself for who I really was. And uh, I saw that I was a slave to sin. And in light of that conviction, I, I saw Jesus, my liberator, my, my savior. And his blood made so much sense to me in that moment. And, and I, I became free. And this makes me think of the book of James. James calls our faith the law of liberty. There's a law, but it's not necessarily the same law that we think of because there's also liberty, a lawful liberty. See, our faith is the law of liberty because Jesus comes into our life and he sets us free. He enables us to do what he wants instead of just doing what we want and actually to to obey him because he starts to change what we want to exalt what we want. And nonetheless, for several years after my conversion in high school, I had to uniquely protect my newfound freedom with specific restrictions or convictions. Now, to be very, very specific, it was because of my weakness that I had a little season in high school that I just couldn't go to the pool. Uh, quite simply, I wasn't free enough to be in the presence of bikinis. It wasn't the bikinis' fault. For years, I tried to blame it on the girls wearing the bikinis. It wasn't their fault either. It was my weakness. And I remember that my baseball team in high school soon caught on to my restrictions and weakness, and they began to badger me. They'd leave pornographic photos in my locker, and they'd, they'd tease me and do different things. And here's how I see it. Um... I'm going to say two words that describes why they did that. It's going to make sense to you, and it's crazy obvious, right? Sinners sin. They don't know any better. That's what they do. They sin. I suppose that my acknowledged weakness 
exposed their weakness. And in their discomfort, they didn't know what else to do. They just badgered me. And that's what they did. They didn't know any better. Sinners sin. They've been taught in school that they're nothing more than evolved animals. And so how are they supposed to have their own view of their own value or know how to value me? They, they, they despised me. They didn't treat me with the divine value that God treats me with. It's not their fault. They, they didn't know any better. But what we're saying here, what Paul's saying here in Romans 14 is that if you have faith in Jesus, you do know better. You do know better. Don't despise a weaker brother because of his convictions. Instead, build him up. Strengthen him. Ask the Holy Spirit for prophetic grace so that the Holy Spirit can show you how to speak and minister to them that shows them their true redeemed identity. And maybe, just maybe, they'll be so enlarged on the inside that all of the the temptations and weaknesses on the outside won't seem so big. Frankly, that's what Christians did for me, have done for me in the last few decades. And listen, that's what the church is for. Not just restrictions, but building each other up. We don't need less convictions. We need more freedom. We need more power. We need more prophecy. We need more Jesus. We need more spiritual revelation of who we are in him. And that's why God has given us good gifts and different Holy Spirit gifts. Now, before I go any further, I... I have a warning for all of us, just like on the conservative and um, have I picked on conservatives enough today? I think so. Some of us can go on thinking that we have strong convictions that honor God, but really we're just honoring our religious pride, right? I think on the other end, there's some contrary deception as well with liberty and freedom. Some of us lack deep convictions not because we're free in the Holy Spirit, but the opposite. It's because we're carnal. We're slaves to our flesh. We don't eat and drink primarily to live in God's honor, but to indulge in our own comfort or sensuality. And I'm not talking about basic needs for nourishment of food and sleep. I'm talking about meeting legitimate needs like that in illegitimate ways. Uh, so, so the Bible would describe the legitimate need of food, if I pervert it, can become gluttony. And I've told you about some of my weakness there with Dunkin' Donuts. Or a legitimate need for sleep can become slothfulness. Or a legitimate need for companionship can become sexual immorality. And it's not the need's fault, and it's not God's fault for designing us with that need. It's our fault for perverting the need instead of putting it on the altar every day and honoring God with our life. And so don't call it freedom when you're worshiping yourself and how you live. Lord, help us to surrender and have true surrender to you. And what's so great about this is when he brings conviction to both sides here, he gives us the ability to have new eyes to judge ourselves. And 1 Corinthians 6 is really helpful with this. All things are lawful to me, but not all things are helpful. Uh, All things are lawful to me, but I will not be dominated by or mastered by anything, context, anything besides God, the true master. And that's what this is all about. We can 
we can try to commend ourselves and, and boast in our freedoms or boast in our convictions and think that these are somehow like badges of honor getting us to God. When God says, no, I made you mine, and so now you have the freedom to play out convictions and liberality rightly because you're mine. And it's all about, are we his possession or not? We don't obey to become his. He makes us his. And then we have obedience from that place because we're his possession. Romans 14 is all about this. Verse 4, you, who are you to pass judgment on the servant, really the possession of God? Verse 8, whether we live or we die, we are the Lord's. And if you are a believer in here today, you're his, as Ephesians 2, his workmanship, his, his possession. You're reborn in Christ for good works. True freedom is being brought back to God and mastered by our creator and our redeemer and no longer mastered by sin. Uh, now, some say, as we close, some say, you know, I don't want to be mastered by anything. I just want to be mastered by, by myself. And, and I understand this, this notion, but listen, I don't think any of us have a choice. I think we're all possessed and mastered by something and ultimately someone. And go with me on a little, a little thought journey here for a second. If you're possessed by delight, one could say that you are, help me, delightful, right? If you're possessed by hate, you're hateful. Boom, nailing it. If you're possessed by self, you're selfish. But if you're possessed by God, you're godly. And in, in the, the rest of our life is to grow in the freedom and the tension of this freedom and this conviction, the beauty and the glory of godliness until we see him face to face. Verse 9 grounds all of this living and, and sorting things out back to us being the possession of Jesus because of verse 9. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, rose again, that he might be the Lord, both of the dead and the living. See, because of this, we remember communion. We remember his death so that we can grow in our life. We can answer every question and every difficulty that comes our way about all of that big old list of things because Jesus shed his blood and laid down his body. And to the degree that we remember and exalt what he did for us over every other question, to that same degree, we can live appropriately today. Would you stand to your feet with me?